Pentecostia River Church. If you don't know me, my name is Ben Brophy. I'm a member here at uh, ARC, and I'm married to Marion, who's usually right over there, but she's taking our kids back to kids' church, and we've got two kids, uh, Emily and Logan. Uh, some of you may remember Emily as the one who did sprints up and down the aisles, and then I slowly chased her. I used to think I was uh, fast, but I'm getting outpaced by a three-year-old, so probably not true. Um, I'm glad to be back here. We've been out of town on and off visiting family for the past few weeks, and you just fall out of a rhythm when you're not with your church family, and so I'm grateful to be here. Um, and we're, we're, kinda, we're coming back a little bit tired because we're running around after the kids, and uh, I've become one of those guys that says I need a vacation from my vacation, which I made fun of my dad for a lot. So that is uh, ironic. Um, but either way, I'm glad to be back. And today, we have our last week in the Summer Salter series. It has been awesome to see so many different men bring God's word to his people. We've heard a lot of discussion about the deep bench that we have at ARC, and this is true. It's been a blessing to see, uh, and I've been blessed by it, and I'm deeply appreciative of the opportunity that the elders and the pastors have given us here to teach. That sort of humility and opportunity is somewhat unusual in many churches to see so many lay people teach, and so I'm, I'm grateful for it, and I'm grateful to God for it. And so our psalm for today, our last psalm for the summer, is Psalm 112. Uh, but before I dive in, uh, I just wanted to pray. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We give praise to you for being the righteous one. And today, as we search your text, Lord, we ask that you would edify us and make our affections for Christ grow larger. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing and honoring to you. And may anything that glorifies you be heard and anything that I get wrong be thrown away, Lord. May you be lifted up and made much of, and may I be a distant memory today. This is all about you, and we want to glorify you. And so it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So to get started, um, we're gonna, I'm going to read Psalm 112. And if you need a Bible, they're handing them out in the aisles, so just flag them down. And I'm just going to read our text since it's short enough to do so. So here it is, Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. 
The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. So as we've gone through this series, we've been given a ton of great background on the Psalms. So most of what I'm going to say in this section is probably old hat for y'all, but worth reviewing anyway to give us a bit of the contextual flavor. Here I'm indebted to a commentary from the Preach the Word series, so if anyone wants to know more about the Psalms, highly recommend it. It's been beneficial to me. But the Psalms are largely a collection of Israel's worship and prayers. They are poems that are written to speak both to our minds and also our hearts. At the same time, the Psalms are the only book written over the thousand-year history of the Israelite nation. The Psalms are also the most quoted book in the New Testament. And more recently, though not that recently, during the Reformation, the Psalms were instrumental in giving the church reformers a model for worship as they moved away from the Latin Mass. So in all these things, we can see the timeless character of the Psalms throughout church history and is still applicable to us today. Psalm 12 specifically paints a picture of what the righteous man does, what his character is, and how he relates to the Lord God. This psalm should be grouped with Psalm 111 as the two psalms form an acrostic together as the first word of each line after the call to praise the Lord starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. For our purposes, if we're not poetry experts, it is enough to say that these should be read together and considered together. In Psalm 111, the Lord is referred to 11 times in a short text. This makes sense, as that psalm is about the greatness of God. He's described as gracious and merciful, faithful and just, awesome. There we go. Psalm 111 is one of praise to the Lord God Almighty. It all starts with God and His righteousness, not with us. In understanding Psalm 112, we should keep this in mind. Psalm 112 pivots to God's workmanship, his people, and specifically the righteous man of God. I have five points to share on this topic of the righteous man, so this is where we're going. First, he relates to God correctly. Second, he relates horizontally to his fellow man in a way that imitates God's love for us. Third, He is steadfast in faith because he knows the Lord will hold him through eternity. And fourth, he will see his enemies, who are the enemies of God, face judgment. Finally, and most importantly, there is only one truly righteous man, and that man is Jesus Christ. It is through him that we can all be made righteous. So here we go. Right off the bat, in verse 1, the psalmist starts us off with, Praise the Lord! By doing so, this test exemplifies for us what the righteous man does. He, and one quick side note, the text here is using the male, but this text is applicable to all God's people regardless of gender. I'll simply be using he as that's what's in the text. But he praises God and relates to him in the way God desires him to do. Don't miss this. The text is keeping first things first. Let us praise the Lord before all else. This flows naturally out of Psalm 111, which is entirely about praise for God Almighty. But there are a few other ways that the righteous man relates correctly to God. First, he fears the Lord. He knows how immensely more powerful God is than us. He knows how tenuous our existence is. 
Hebrews 10.31 says it this way. He says, it says, that is, it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What does this mean exactly? Famously, Jonathan Edwards, in one of the few sermons I ever heard referenced in my high school history class, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, compared the fate of sinful people to a spider dangling over flames with only the hand of God holding him back from his fate. Sinners, without the mediation of Christ, are in this very position. For Christians, for the righteous man, we correctly tremble at the immensity of God and what we have been saved from. Indeed, continued existence is made possible by God himself. Colossians tells us that at this very moment, the entire universe is held together by Christ's will, which means every existence, every second of our existence is willed by him. The very atoms that make up our being stay in tension because Christ wills it. This knowledge should produce a healthy awe of God in us. However, to be clear, this fear is not one of terror, but of respectful love. R.C. Sproul, channeling Martin Luther, talked of servile and filial fear. Servile refers to the dread of a torturer or the fear of someone who is going to bring great pain to us. Filial fear is one of loving respect, like that of a child to a loving father. So the righteous man or woman fears God in the filial sense. He loves and respects God for who he is and knows that everything is held in God's hands. He is aware that his salvation is wholly dependent on the Lord in this life and in the next, but that fear is coupled with trust in God's goodness. So the righteous man also knows the Lord is good in addition to being in all of his power. He has seen and tasted that the Lord is good. So one of the true wonders and glories of God is that he is as good as he is all-powerful. And thank God that he is, for if he were not, we would be doomed. Out of this understanding flows the rest of the attributes covered in this passage. The righteous man doesn't start with himself or other people. He starts with God and lets that knowledge lead him into obedience in his own life and then govern his relations to other human beings. So then, since the righteous man knows and fears the Lord, he delights in his commandments. We see this in the second line of verse 1 as it flows from the first line. The righteous man fears the Lord, and the Lord's commandments become his delight. The Psalms are not alone in declaring God's commandments should be our delight. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9 says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. A clear implication of fearing and loving God is listening and dwelling on his word. The practical principle for God's people today is to be in his word. This is the common advice that Christians give one another, right? Read your Bible more. But ultimately, it is about more than head knowledge. 
there are scholars out there who do not believe in one iota of the gospel, but know the Bible far better than I ever will. The call on us is much more than that, much more than head knowledge. Our text again is instructive. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. This is a call on our hearts as much as it is a call on our discipline. We must delight in God's word. Our hearts should rejoice in what he has revealed to us. So yes and amen, let us be in our Bibles, but let us also pray to God to give us hearts that receive and delight in what we read there. Delighting in God's word means a few things. It does mean our hearts soar when meditating on the majesty of God revealed in Scripture. It does mean being brought to tears when seeing that our sin necessitated the crucifixion of Christ on our behalf in the Gospels. But it also means obedience to God's word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, this word whose claim we recognize This word which issues from his saying, I have known thee, this word which sets us at once to work in obedience is the rock on which to build our house. The only proper response to this word which Jesus brings with him from eternity is simply to do it. Jesus has spoken. His is the word, ours is the obedience. Only in the doing of it does the word of Jesus retain its honor, might, and power among us. Now the storm can rage over the house, but it cannot shatter that union with him which his word has created. And so delighting in God's word means obeying it. And all of this is part of how we relate to God correctly. In verses 2 and 3, we see our second point that the righteous man is blessed. How easy it is to see verse 3 as a guarantee of material wealth. Our brother Daniel touched on this in his sermon, but how quickly those who promote a prosperity gospel will seize on a verse like this to promise material blessing. But how wrong this is. Material wealth and riches fade. They cannot endure. Moth and rust destroy them. Scripture tells us this. We brought nothing into this world, and we can't take any stuff with us when we die. More tragically, if we make God's creation, his stuff, instead of him, the thing we want most in our lives, it will consume us and never satisfy. Consider what Romans 1 has to say when we trade God for his creations. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Or consider the warning from 1 Timothy about desiring material wealth above all things. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with pangs. This is 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. There are so many things that we can turn into little idols. As the verse from 1 Timothy makes clear, money is an obvious one, especially in our culture. And ironically, it can be an idol for the rich and poor alike. The telltale sign is a craving for money above all else. But the overwhelming warning in Scripture is to the rich. The parable of the great banquet in Luke points this out. It shows that it is the rich that are more concerned with their things in the world than they are being at the banquet with God. And it is the poor that are welcomed in. This is a heavy warning, and those of us who have been blessed materially should take it seriously. Sex is yet another common example of things that we can turn into little idols. In our central media-heavy culture, with all forms of entertainment streamed into our homes and into our very pockets, the preoccupation with allowing our eyes to stare hungrily at things not meant for us is all too easy to fall into. Yet attaining more money or more illicit sexual content will not satisfy our souls. It is simply a quick dopamine hit until our sinful flesh demands another, and then another, and another. This craving is all too real. Sin creates in us a desire for more sin, and there's never a bottom to those depths. It won't stop until it has consumed you, root, stem, and branch. There is only one object of worship that gives to us instead of takes, and that's Jesus Christ. To worship anything else, even seemingly good things, creates a black hole of desire that we will spend our very lives pursuing. And all we will get in return is a desire for more sin and eventually our own deaths with nothing to show for a misspent life. Brothers and sisters, if you're trapped in a cycle of wrong-headed desires, do not let it consume you. There is hope. There is something more to what the psalmist is saying the righteous man will receive. Verse 3 tells us that his righteousness will endure forever. How can that be? How can his wealth and blessing extend beyond this world? We just talked about how wealth will be destroyed. We can't take it with us. So what does this mean? It means the wealth of the righteous man must be something eternal. And it is, for his prize is the relationship to God himself through Jesus Christ for all eternity. The righteous man's treasure is God. The righteous man's blessing is God. The righteous man's wealth is God. This is an identifying characteristic of the righteous man. But the righteous man is also blessed with wisdom. In these early verses, Psalm 112 is on one hand telling us the good results of being a righteous man as it regards blessing. But they also simply describe the characteristics of of this righteous man. He fears the Lord and delights in his commandments, but he is also wise. Psalm 111, as we mentioned, should be read in tandem with 112, ends with the oft-repeated definition of wisdom in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
and all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This definition of wisdom correlates with the idea that blessing is not related to material wealth, but rather a true understanding of God. This is wisdom biblically defined. So often, worldly wisdom is quite the opposite. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the following, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So then, wisdom is an attribute, a characteristic of the righteous man, but it is also a gift given by God. For the natural man cannot understand these things without God's intervention. And without his intervention, we are all natural people. We saw this in the passage from Romans 1 we referenced earlier. Therefore, the godly man is wise, and that wisdom is a gift from God. This is key, because it is ultimately God that makes one righteous. But we'll get to this later. So far, we've gone over the first two points in this text, and they concern the relationship of the righteous man to God and how that impacts the life of that man. However, there's more. The righteous man's heart is rightly oriented to God, and this means he will love God's commandments and fear the Lord, but it also must overflow horizontally into the righteous man's relationships with other human beings. Verses five, sorry, verses four, five, and nine from Psalm 112 all set forth principles for these horizontal relationships. And so quickly, we'll read through some of the adjectives that are used here. The righteous man is graceful, merciful, righteous. He deals generously and lends. He conducts his affairs with justice. He distributes freely and gives to the poor. These are principles for the Christian, for the man or woman of God to follow. Church, would people who know you well describe you as graceful, merciful, and righteous? Would they describe me that way? I'm not so sure that they would. We should endeavor that we would be known as people who love the poor, are powerful forces for justice, hold our money loosely, and are consumed with graciousness. The principles here apply to God's people across time periods. There's no out clause. This is what we're called to be. Here in Psalm 112, how we steward and use the material wealth God has given us is a primary concern. There are at least four references to being generous with money. The righteous man deals generously and lends. He has distributed freely and given to the poor. There are six references to being generous if you include material concerns, as I do, in the adjectives merciful and gracious. We previously discussed how money can be an idol, but here the emphasis is using money for God-honoring purposes. In our context, there is no shortage of worthy endeavors to be generous towards, locally and abroad. Conscience should guide us in what decisions we make and what we want to spend our time and money on. But there are myriads of opportunity. However, generosity should start close to home. Our local church body is a primary concern. We should be looking for opportunities to consider others 
before considering ourselves. And if we don't have money, we have something far more valuable, our time, which can never be replaced. Share that generously here in the local church. For those of us who God has blessed materially, be prepared to share generously. But this is only the starting point. Our generosity should begin at the church and overflow into our surrounding communities, our neighborhoods, and our city, and ultimately, the world at large. Honestly, I could do far better on this point. Part of the reason we should do things like save and budget and all of those valuable financial disciplines that we've all been told we need to do is to enable us to generously give when opportunities arise. It's not to store up riches in a bank account. It's to bless the people around us. I often don't see my, financial, my lack of financial discipline, whether that's eating out too much or buying some shoes I don't need, as robbing me of the ability to be generous to my brothers and sisters. But that's what it does, both locally and around the world. I mentioned two sets of resources that we have, money and time. These are also two good ways to assess what we care about, what our hearts are set on. So take a good, uh, take a good look at your wallets or bank accounts or credit card statements and ask yourself, where are you spending your money? And then ask yourself, what do I think of how I'm spending my time? Do I redeem it to glorify the Lord, or am I wasting it? A resource so valuable, there is no replacing it. Better yet, go through this exercise with a brother or sister in Christ in full transparency. I have found that we in the church are unusually open in many issues. Praise be to God. But in my experience, one exception is our money. It's uncomfortable, and far too often, we have tied our self-worth to how valuable we are. Let me take a minute to dispel that. It does not matter how much money you have, you are infinitely valuable to God. So valuable that he was willing to come put on flesh and die on your behalf. So once we're freed from the idea that the money we have is somehow indicative of the value we have, we can hold it a whole lot more loosely. Ultimately, though, we will be held accountable for how we use the time and money that's been entrusted to us. The Christian life is a community project. We cannot and should not be afraid to have transparency on the issue of finance. So then, the righteous man lets his love of God guide his relationships with other people, but he is also steadfast in faith. We see this in verses 7 and 8. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So the description of the heart of the righteous man is steady. This does seem to be a particular challenge in a world that has been broken by sin. And we don't have to look very far to see the consequences of that. To paraphrase a commentary I read in preparation for this sermon, it is very hard not to think of Job at this point. He endured such great loss, such that I cannot imagine. He was a wealthy man who lost everything that he had. But more crushingly, he lost his seven sons and three daughters in an instant. Yet, his response was to turn to God. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can this be? How did Job's faith not fail in the midst of losing everything? Simply this. Because the object of his faith is greater than anything we face in this world. For you see, church, God asks you to cast his burden on him, and if you do so, he will sustain you. He will be the one who ensures that you are never moved. This is our one comfort in the midst of pain and loss. The righteous man described here is also unafraid because his faith is in the Lord. Bad news cannot shake him. 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us this, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the source of the Christian's bravery. The fact that God's Holy Spirit is at work within us and God's call to cast our burdens on him. He's asking you for your troubles, your pain, and your loss. Let us bring them to him first, and his word promises that he will sustain us. That's quite a trade. We give him our burden, and he gives us freedom, and he promises to sustain us. However, there is a flip side to the righteous man and his blessings. Proverbs 10.7 puts it this way. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The previous, the previous attributes of the righteous man describe his qualities, how he relates to God, and how he relates to others. But we also see something prophetic here. For the righteous man of God will see his enemies face judgment, which is our next point. Verse 8 tells us that he will look in triumph over his adversaries. And verse 10 tells us that the wicked man will melt away and his desires will perish. Since the righteous man fears God, follows his commandments, and is one of his people, those who hate God will hate the man who fears God. This should not surprise us, for the world hated Jesus before it hated us. John 15, 18 through 20 testifies, testifies to this very fact. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. This wicked man stands as a contrast to the rest of the psalm. His response is to hate the way of the righteous so much that he has a physical reaction. He gnashes his teeth. Few things alert us more to someone's anger than being out of control physically. But this hate for the way of the righteous will come under judgment. Perhaps that judgment will come in this life. But there are some wicked men who go straight to their deathbeds, despising God and those who follow him. Some do escape judgment in this life. So how do we square that circle with our text? There's one example I'll give of someone who thus far has escaped judgment. Uh, this is the news recently. There was a story about a former Nazi guard 
uh, whose name I'm going to butcher, but it's Jakub Palige. He lived in the United States in Queens, New York for decades. He immigrated to this country in 1949 and for roughly 70 years was able to live a quiet, relatively prosperous life. He finally was sent back a few weeks ago to Germany, but is unlikely to face prosecution as he is so elderly and unwell. Now, I have no idea what the state of this man's heart is or soul is. I don't know how he is positionally as it relates to Christ. But given he never confessed to his participation in the Holocaust and sought to hit it, it does seem he believed justice was not something he needed to be subjected to or to face. And in this life, it seems he's correct. He most likely will never face any trial or penalties for his crimes. But he will face something much more terrifying soon, and that is judgment before the living God. There is judgment for the wicked, and ultimately this judgment will come for all at the end of all things. There is no one who will be able to avoid answering for their actions, and either Christ will have paid the price on their behalf, or they will pay the price. And we see this specifically in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Therefore, those who oppose the righteous man and his God, those who gnash their teeth right into the grave, will face righteous judgment. And it is in this sense that the text is accurate when it says the man of God will ultimately look upon his adversaries in triumph. triumph. However, there is hope for the wicked, which, let's be perfectly clear, includes you and me. That hope is the subject of our last point, which is this. There is only one truly righteous man, Jesus Christ, and it is through him that we can be, we can be made righteous. Paul, in Romans 3.10, confirms for us that none of us are righteous. He paraphrases the Old Testament scriptures and says that there is no one who is righteous, no one who does good. This is a seeming paradox with Psalm 112. Why describe the righteous man if no one is good? According to Paul, the righteous man does not exist, right? Well, no. And Psalm 112 has given us a good good overview of how we can become righteous. You see, this entire psalm points to the fact that righteousness starts with God, as I spoke at the beginning. It is God that restores us to right relationship with him. It is God who gives our hearts the desire to love his commandments. It is God's work in us and through us that enables our ability to relate to our fellow human beings correctly. And it is God who will judge all people at the end of all things. How God does this is important, and he did it by becoming the righteous one on our behalf. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to be that righteous man. Simply looking through the attributes of the righteous man described here, I know I don't measure up. Heck, I didn't measure up already this morning, and I wrote this knowing I would blow it this morning. And I did, 
because I cursed at my cats for throwing up on the rug. I also don't fear the Lord as I should. I treat the Lord all too casually. I know this is true for me, and I see it nowhere more clearly than in my unseriousness as it relates to sin. These are things I tell myself. Everyone struggles with keeping their eyes pure, right? Everyone loses control of their anger, right? These are little justifications that I tell myself, and I think we tell ourselves as we struggle with sin. Here a little, there a little. Just a little compromise, not knowing we are hurtling towards judgment. If we truly understood what it meant to be in the hands of God, this would terrify us. Or how about delighting in God's commandments? Do we really love his law, his word? When we read his scriptures, are we looking for more information to win an argument or to sound impressive? Or does our heart cry out for more of what God has to say? A quick look at my time in the word shows far too much dusty self-interest rather than a love for an encounter with the God of the universe that he has disclosed to us in the Bible. As it relates to how we treat one another, who among us has been perfectly just, perfectly generous? I know I haven't. How many times have I turned away from the poor asking me for money in this city? Does it matter what they intend to do with the money? Luke 6.30 says to give to those who ask. And in our local context, this is a tough look because I'm guessing most of us are asked for money all the time. So it's in these ways, and I'm sure many others, that we fail the exhortation laid out by this text. Indeed, Psalm 112 stands as a condemnation of us if we're without God because it shows the standards of righteousness and it shows all the ways we fail to meet that standard. But I know someone who did not fail to meet that standard. I know someone who is perfectly righteous. Jesus came to be this man on our behalf. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is good news. Christ is intimately aware of the struggles, the difficulties, and the limitations we have because he put on flesh. He knows what it is like to be human, and yet he was still perfectly obedient to God's law. But it didn't end there. Christ also made a way for us to share in his righteousness. By dying on the cross, Christ served as the perfect sacrifice to reconcile us to God. This paved the way for us to come to Christ through faith and have his righteousness given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here is the gospel, brothers and sisters. We can be made righteous, as righteous as Christ, by placing our faith in him. The answer here is the same for those who don't know Christ and those who have been walking with him for 40 years. We need him to achieve any sort of righteousness. Look back at our text today. Everything starts with God. It starts with putting him in his proper place as Lord. It is not enough to know the law of God. We must delight in it. 
But who can change the heart of man? Only God can. And he desires to do so. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die in our place in order that to be sin so that we don't have to be stuck in our evil, that we may be as righteous as Jesus is. For those of you that don't believe, that offer is available to you right now. All you must do is repent of your sins and believe in Christ. Turn away from the way of the wicked that will eventually perish and turn towards Christ. By doing so, your righteousness will endure forever because Christ's righteousness will endure forever. You will be one with Christ for eternity. Don't get it twisted. There is not one magic saying that saves you and then frees you to return back to a life of sin. Rather, the Christian life is one of continual repentance and dependence on God. But this is great and wonderful. This is a great and wonderful thing. Because it means there is no super Christian. There's no one in this room who has become so holy that they have moved beyond the need for Jesus. However, this should encourage us because before God, there is none that is more qualified to be righteous through Christ. That opportunity is just hanging out there for all of us. It's waiting for you. And if you feel your heart stirred, if you have a sense that the God of the universe is tugging on your heart, don't leave here today without talking to someone about that feeling. Talk to who brought you, or any member, or a pastor, or even me, after the service. For those of us who are Christians, our dependence and faith in Christ frees us from any need to try and justify ourselves. Christ frees us from the requirements of the law and makes us righteous. Now, we can pursue the exhortations of this passage without fear of measuring up, for Christ has already measured up on our behalf. Now, we can imperfectly strive to praise and fear God, to be generous and just with our fellow man. It gives us the confidence to be steadfast in the face of trials. Christ was the ultimate righteous one, so let us likewise use the freedom he's given us to strive to be righteous, generous, and just. Three times in this psalm, some variation of the phrase, his righteousness endures forever, is repeated. I assume there were, genera- there were righteous men generations ago. More, most likely, there's countless righteous men over the past three, four, five, six generations. But largely, they are forgotten in our memories. Even within our own families, few of us recall people who lived four generations ago. This is one of the tragic consequences of living in a fallen world. Death quickly obscures the memory of those who have come before us. My own grandfather, Jack, he passed away at 98 this year. I'm blessed because I have hope that I will see him again with Christ. It's all the more sweet because my grandfather came to faith late in life, at 94, and baptized the same year. This is an incredible kindness of the Lord to me and to my family. We're blessed by that. At the same time, Jack was always, in his, throughout his life, he was interested in religion and recognized that it had power in changing the lives of people. But for the longest time, he just wasn't convinced that there was only one way to reconcile with God, and that's through Christ. 
But over a few years of Bible study and patient, faithful endurance from my mother and aunts, he professed Christ and was baptized. I am grateful to God for this. This is a miracle. It's rare for somebody to go nine decades without faith and then come to Christ. Even before he was a Christian, he exemplified a lot of the characteristics that I think are worthy of imitation. I could see the image of God in him and common grace throughout his life. He was hardworking, self-sacrificing, and loving towards his family. But here's the thing. My daughter will not remember him outside of pictures and stories I tell. My daughter's children, should the Lord be kind enough to bless her with them, will remember even less, if anything at all. Jack's character, his incredible conversion late in life, will eventually be lost to memory. But according to Psalm 112, his righteousness will endure forever, and his memory will endure forever. How can this be? Because righteousness is our, because his righteousness is united with Christ's, and Christ will reign forever. We too can, and for those of us who believe, will persist in righteousness forever with Christ, unified with him. We get a brief picture of what this looks like in Revelation 21, and I'll close with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the future for those who are united in Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for being the one righteous one, for sending your son to be perfectly righteous and to die on our behalf so that we we could be reconciled to you. I pray that as we go out from this place that we would be strengthened to be righteous in our neighborhoods, our city, our jobs, and to the people we see around us. May we be generous and a force for justice in a city that so often sees a lack of it. Lord, we are grateful for everything you've given us, and we are grateful for your word. And today, as we leave this place, Lord, may the things that glorify you and are correct according to your word stay with your people today. And if anything I've said is misplaced, Lord, may may it be pushed out of their mind. Again, we give you praise for who you are, and we are grateful for all you've done on our behalf. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.